this week on the Backtable podcast. But you simultaneously also have to realize that you don't have to do every case that comes through your door. And that's a difficult position as like a young faculty free flap surgeon to be in is like you get hired, especially if there are a few surgeons, head and neck surgeons, whatnot in your division or departments and they send you a case and you're like, okay, well, they hired me to do this. They're sending me this. So they obviously think that I should be able to do this case. But there are cases that you shouldn't be doing when you're fresh out, you know, revision, revision, like third flap, that vessel depleted, like mid face. I don't know. There's stuff that it's okay to say, like, this is not something that I, at this point in my life, want to be doing because the risk of something bad happening and then the ability to salvage the situation, the payoff there is just not favorable. It doesn't take one year of fellowship to like figure out how to do this. And you know, you got to push yourself, but you got to be patient with it too. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast. We're a podcast that focuses on all things otolaryngology, and we've got a really great show for you today. Thanks for stopping by. Now a quick word from our sponsor. Cook Medical's otolaryngology head and neck surgery clinical specialty strives to provide otolaryngologists with minimally invasive solutions to address unmet needs. Areas of focus include head and neck, otology, and laryngology, with products ranging from a full suite of interventional silendoscopy products and the Doppler blood flow monitoring system to the BioDesign otologic repair graft and the Hercules 100 transnasal esophageal balloon. For more information, visit cookmedical.com forward slash otolaryngology. Now, back to the show. I'm one of your hosts today, Ashley Agan. I'm a general ENT. My name is Gopi Shaw. I'm a pediatric ENT. How are you today, Ash? Hey, I'm doing good. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. <laughs> I'm excited about our guest today. The topic I'm excited about, very curious about, I don't know enough about, but the guest I'm very happy to have on the show. Yeah, we're very, very lucky to have our, our friend Eli Gordon on the show today. I'll introduce him and then we can kind of get into it. Dr. Eli Gordon is an associate professor in otolaryngology at UT Southwestern in Dallas. Uh, he completed his residency at Thomas Jefferson in Philadelphia and received advanced training in facial plastic and reconstructive surgery and microvascular surgery through a fellowship at Baylor Scott & White All Saints Medical Center under Dr. Yadro Juchik. He um, is known well to Gopi and I. Gopi and Eli were in residency together. Eli Shout was out to my, Jeff. was my fellow when I was a third-year medical student, or not medical student, when I was a third-year resident. Um, but he's here today. He's going to talk to us about free flaps. Welcome to the show, Eli. Hello. Thank you. <laughs> I'm like, you're so dressed nicely today. The rest, we're in like t-shirts. I, I'm almost like, man, I should have brought my own sports coat or something. I told you I was under instructions that this was a black tie affair. So, <laughs> you know, I do what I'm told. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. We, we all go way back. So it's it's fun to be behind the mic today and you can kind of help share some of your insight and wisdom in uh, free flap surgery. Uh, it's definitely been a while since I have thought about that or been involved in that. Aside from the time to time when you wander through the room randomly and I'm like <laughs> yelling at people, but yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, except when I just need to kind of pop over and see like, what's going on over here? So st starting out, you know, can you just, you know, for the audience that, that for listeners that don't have the privilege to know you, can you tell us about yourself and your practice, you know? How many flaps have you done? How many are you doing per month these days? Like, um, you know, how did you get here? Life story in five minutes. 
So I was born on a wintry day in March. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I mean, as far as how I got here, it was a little bit circuitous. I was a med student. I thought I was going to do neurosurgery for the longest time. And then I realized it wasn't necessarily for me. And then one of my classmates, Brian Newbro, who also ended up uh, being one of our co-residents at Jefferson, we're at a party one day in August of fourth year of med school or July, like something that's way too late to be, um, you know, applying to otolaryngology as a resident. Uh, he's telling me about how one day he was in the OR and they took somebody's fibula and they reconstructed their jaw with it. And I was like, well, that sounds crazy. So I got to check this out. So I did and I thought it was interesting. And so the rest is history. Um, you already gave my, my training background, so I'm not going to reiterate that. So at, at this point I do around 80 flaps a year. So that's like one to two a week, although it's pretty um, variable, you know, when it rains, it pours and sometimes there's nothing. So sometimes there's like five a week, sometimes there's zero a week, but uh, altogether I've was just tallying the numbers the other day and it's uh, just shy of 600 total at this point. Um, and this is, I guess, my ninth year or so doing this. So, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's pretty that's awesome. awesome. Yeah, I think, I mean, and you know, here at UT, I mean, you're covering, you know, free flaps at our county hospital, which is which is a very busy practice with lots of head and neck cancer, and then at our um, university hospital as well. So, I mean, I feel like when I'm when I'm on call and I'm rounding, there's always, you know, free flap patients in the hospital, and and it's yeah, they're they're usually your patients. You're our yeah, main guy. We keep ourselves busy, I guess. But I do do some other stuff besides just free flaps. You know, do the full spectrum of facial plastic surgery and and um, obviously I'm facial plastics trained and there's some slight differences there, but uh, I'll do the trauma, you know, cover trauma too, do local reconstructive surgery for Mohs defects, do rhinoplasty, do facial nerve, do some other cosmetic stuff. So kind of a little bit of everything, but this takes up like pretty much at least 50% of my time. So when patients um, are referred to you uh, for reconstruction, how do you start? How do you decide which patients are going to get the free flat versus something local? What what kind of? How do you start thinking about it? Um, do they have arms or legs? If so, then free <laughs> flat. And if not, then local. I mean, it really just depends on the defect size, you know, and and where it is. So most, you know, like I was talking about the Mohs reconstruction. Most of that ends up being local flaps, nasal reconstruction, unless it's a total nasal reconstruction. But um, you know, the color match for tissue that comes from the face is better than the color match and texture match of tissue that's going to come from elsewhere in the body. So if it's possible to get away with something that's local, locally sourced tissue from the head and neck region, then for external defects, that's always a little bit nicer cosmetically. But then sometimes the defect is just a little bit too big or too too deep, too thick. Uh, I mean, you can do free flaps in combination with local flaps, it's not like it's either or. So usually there's some sort of, you know, hybrid approach for these more external facial defects. And yeah, it really just depends on where it is. Anything that's for the most part inside the mouth, inside the throat, bony defects of the mandible or the, the upper maxillary alveolus, then those are generally going to get a free flap, whether it's a fibula or a scapula for the, the bony requirement there. But some smaller bone uh, reconstructions like the orbital rim or things that aren't load-bearing structures, those might get bone grafts and those may or may not be wrapped in free fascia flaps or, or you know, fasciocutaneous free flaps or just kind of standalone. So it really just depends on the type of defect. Yeah, they can get really complicated. And are you seeing most of these patients like pre-op? 
Like, do you, or most of the time, are you able to see them before they've had yeah. their ablation and kind of, you know, what, what does that visit look like? What other things are you thinking about? Uh, the goal is to see them ahead of time because there, there's a lot of counseling that goes into it and, you know, people have no idea what to expect. So most of my visit is just kind of telling them, you know, what it's going to be like when they're in the hospital, what we're planning on doing. I mean, they really just, this isn't something that the general public has ever even heard of. Um, head and neck cancer in and of itself is fairly rare and people aren't really aware of it. Uh, certainly not the reconstruction. They always kind of assume we're just going to do some skin grafts. So a lot of it is like explaining what the difference between just a skin graft and a more robust reconstruction is. Uh, a lot of these patients have had some minor surgeries like cutaneous malignancies and like little local flap adjacent tissue rearrangements or skin grafts. So sometimes they think they know what uh, they're in for, but the main, again, the main purpose of the visit is just to kind of go over all the expectations, you know, especially when it's something that's going to involve the upper aerodigestive tract and there's going to be trach involved or feeding tubes involved, plus the donor site morbidity, wound care instructions, and, you know, just when they can expect to return to some semblance of normalcy in terms of their eating and their speaking and of course, their appearance, they're, they're always very concerned about how they're going to look afterwards and whether they're going to have some kind of horrible disfigurement. And so it's, it's really just hashing out all those issues. And um, that usually takes, you know, 45, 30, 45 minutes, something in that realm. What are the most, what's the most common question that a patient? From patients to me. Yeah. They like to know how long they're going to be in the hospital. I mean, people are always asking what's the recovery time? And that's a complicated question. You know, it's not really like a, you wait a couple weeks and then all of a sudden you are recovered. It's a long process. And that's what I tell them. I tell them it takes, you know, the majority of the healing occurs after the first several weeks to month, but then it's really going to be an ongoing process for really a year um, until they're really not noticing, you know, not thinking about the fact that they had this surgery every day especially when it comes to, you know, donor site issues like fibula, they, they have pretty, they have ankle swelling, they have sore ankle issues. I tell them it's going to be like a terrible ankle sprain for potentially months. Uh, and that depends on how big of a segment of bone you have to take and how low you go into the ankle. But um, I just prepare them that they may need, especially elderly patients who are already are not as spry as some of the younger patients, they might need assistance, they might need a walker or a cane. Some of them temporarily need need a wheelchair or just can't walk. It really depends on their pre-op functional status. So again, this conversation is tailored to the patient depending on where they're at in their current, you know, life in terms of age. But, you know, age is not really the, the indicator for expecting there to be problems or complications or difficulties with their recovery. It's more their overall functional status. You know, sometimes we operate on 86-year-olds, 90-year-olds who do better than 60-year-olds depending on just their other medical problems and their overall conditioning. So yeah, the most common question is definitely just how long is it going to take for me to kind of get back to my normal life? And the other thing that complicates that, of course, is if they're getting radiation post-op, you know, for the oncologic patients, most of them, if their tumor is large enough that they're going to need a free flap, most of these patients are going to end up getting radiation. So, you know, right at the point where they start to feel like they're recovering from the surgery, about a month after the surgery, then they have to start radiation and then it sets them back and yeah. People inevitably inevitably get frustrated by that, and you know, and one of the, by the time they've 
started recovering after they've been in the hospital for a week and after those several weeks of additional time pass um, post-op, the last thing they want to do is subject themselves to another treatment with pain and with you know losing their energy and, and all the side effects that come along with radiation or chemo radiation. But so then the conversation shifts to you know trying to make sure that they they do go through with it and and reiterating the fact that they've already undergone all this stuff and all this surgery and all this recovery and the purpose of the next step with the adjuvant therapy is to prevent this from recurring so that we don't have to go through this all over again so there's you know there's a lot of just trying to encourage people and trying to keep them positive which i mean probably surprises you guys like people that know me would be like well you're the last person i would come to for <laughs> i know i'm like who knew eli was so compassionate i'm like there's some compassion just pouring out right now Man. um yeah but i can be very very understanding and empathetic <laughs> and encouraging and um you know like when that's your job then then you do but uh so yeah it's just a lot of um just trying to tell them that what they're going through, you know, I've never gone through it before. I can't imagine what it's like to go through it, but I've seen hundreds of people go through it and we get, we get them through. And that, this is pretty much like what I tell them in the pre-op visit. I'm like, I've, I've seen people go through this a hundred times. I can't tell you, I know how it feels to go through it, but we've seen pretty much all the complications when they happen. They're usually pretty minor, just bumps in the road. And you know, we will get you through it and you have to just trust us and try not to be too frustrated. You know, when they're in the hospital, people are obviously apprehensive about the surgery before, you know, at this first post-operative visit when I'm telling them all the things that we're going to be doing and especially again when it's involving trachs and feeding tubes and so on and so forth. But I just, yeah, tell them that we'll get them through it and it's not the pain, you know, they're worried about pain they're worried about breathing through a trach, and uh, I just tell them that usually people aren't in excruciating pain. Like it's always surprising, for the most part, how little pain the patients are having post-op, and we can control the pain with medications. A lot of times they're having tumor pain pre-op, which is much more difficult to control. So many people feel better, you know, within the first few days after having the surgery because their their surgical pain is more easily controlled than their like neuropathic pain from tumor that's encroaching onto various sensory nerves. But the frustrating thing is that people are in the ICU, they've got a million lines on them, they've got drains, they've got trach, they've got feeding tube, they can't get out of bed, they're labeled as a fall risk, they can't go to the bathroom on their own, they literally like have to depend on people for every single function that they want to do. They can't speak most of the time, temporarily, and then nurses are coming in to check them every half hour to hour, so they can't sleep for days. And so people just get incredibly frustrated, and it's not like the pain, it's not it's not the surgery, it's just like the frustration Function. and going through that and losing independence temporarily and losing, you know, all control over your life temporarily. But again, you know, everybody is, is here to, for them and to get them through it. And we, we do it, you know, this is what we do. So are there certain questions in your history in that initial visit that help you determine whether the patient's a good candidate for a free flap or what are some red flags where put them at higher risk for flat failure or, you know, where you wouldn't necessarily, you know, that might disqualify them in your mind uh, for a free flap? Uh, the main thing is whether they have some kind of hypercoagulable state or a family history thereof. So I ask everybody if they've had a prior blood clot in their legs or their lungs, DBT, PE, or are aware of any clotting disorders that they have or that might run in their family. 
that's pretty rare to see that, at least in our patient population. The other thing would be peripheral vascular disease. So I asked them if they've ever been told they have poor circulation in their legs um, or, you know, in general at all. A lot of people start saying that they had a blood clot in their coronary artery and they had a stent, you know, that kind of thing. That's different than having some kind of unexplained DVTPE situation. So those are the main things, just uh, vascular disease and hypercoagulable state. Other than that, unless they've had multiple surgeries, you know, multiple flaps before, multiple neck surgeries, vessel depleted kind of situation, still not really a contraindication. So like uh, collagen vascular disorders, like scleroderma, some of these other collagen vascular disorders, there's, there's not a lot of patients that have these disorders and then also have free flaps. So the data is sparse, but it seems to be that there is some association with increased risk of thrombosis and flaps for people that have these, um, some of these collagen vascular disorder. Does nutrition play a role? Are y'all checking labs for yeah, like we check nutrition labs. status? We do, but a lot of times there's nothing you can do about that. I mean, because they oftentimes have the nutritional, you know, the, the malnutrition from their disease, from their tumor. And then sometimes we'll try and place a pre-op, you know, feeding tube, either NG tube or, or G tube, um, and try and the, to boost their nutrition a little bit. But you also don't want to wait too long to do the surgery. So it's a balancing act between trying to trying to optimize them in terms of nutrition and trying to expeditiously get them to the OR. But if they're really, you know, some people, their nutrition is so poor that you, you know that they're going to have a major wound healing problem and it could be a life-threatening issue. So then it's worthwhile to delay for, you know, maybe several weeks to try and optimize them a little bit. But that's not common. Do you manage your smokers in a certain way preoperatively? Counsel them that the more that they can cut back or ideally quit, then the better off they're chance of avoiding complications is going to be. And we have resources, you know, smoking cessation clinic. So we'll refer them to the smoking cessation clinic. And again, we don't have much time. It's not like a, a more elective reconstructive case. Like let's say somebody's already had treatment or had a trauma or has some other reconstructive need, but there's no urgency. There's no, let's say like open wound or there's no tumor. Then in those cases, then I will definitely strongly counsel against proceeding to surgery until they've been able to to cut down drastically or quit entirely. You know, if there's no, again, if there's no urgency, then there's no reason to not do it under the best circumstances because those are usually challenging cases anyway if they have some sort of like chronic problem that requires this kind of a reconstruction. Just bouncing back to the, the patients who um, have a history of clots or are hypercoagulable, that doesn't exclude them from having a free flap. It just changes the way you think about it is that right like or like let's Correct. say it's a patient that now they have to take they're on warfarin or eliquis or they're on something because of this history it just you know you just kind of manage that correct like it doesn't necessarily mean that they can't have a free flap yeah i mean if they have a hypercoagulable state like let's say a leiden factor five or something like that it's not a contraindication to doing uh free tissue transfer but it certainly puts them at higher risk for having a complete flap failure, you know, a thrombosis and a complete flap failure. And then it means that we're going to put them on some degree of anticoagulation during the case and then continuing that post-op until they can transition back to their regular uh, anticoagulation if they normally take it, uh, or even if they don't take it. If, if there is a diagnosed hypercoagulable state, then, then they'll be on some heparin during the case and in the first several weeks post-op. So it's, 
you know, and again, the numbers are small, so it's hard to quote them specific risks, but, you know, patients who don't have any of those risk factors or medical comorbidities, we don't give them any aspirin. We don't, we just give them routine DVT prophylaxis as you would to any patient in the hospital. So they're not getting anything. So, um, yeah, somebody who, who has a defined and real hypercoagulable state, then they will get heparin. It kind of depends on what the exact condition is and kind of how the case is going and uh, the appearance of everything intraoperatively, but we'll, we'll generally start them on heparin while they're having surgery. For um, your pre-op workup for the donor site, do you get like MRAs of the legs or are you getting any like ultrasounds or, or anything specific on your exam to help you know that the artery, you know, the perfusion's good or the artery's good. Is that routine or For how do you... fibula, CTA, CT angiogram of the, you know, it ends up being a CT angiogram abdomen pelvis. And then we're kind of just writing in the comments that we're trying to evaluate the three vessel runoff to the lower extremity bilaterally. Um, so we get CTA for fibula patients. Um, forearm, we don't do any imaging. We just clinically do Allen tests and then scapula no imaging you know unless we're doing virtual surgical planning then we'll get imaging just of the scapula itself but not of any kind of angiography so it's a non-contrast ct chest thigh flaps don't require any imaging so it's really just fibula you mentioned like the um, virtual surgical planning um i feel like that's um a lot more common than when i was a resident like i feel like that you're are you do are you doing that a lot more than you used to and what does that entail yeah, I did not train with virtual surgical planning. Um, so it's something that I slowly adopted over time. And I tried it out a little bit when I first completed my training because one of my partners was interested in using it and I kind of didn't like it that much. But then it's improved over the years. And there is a certain amount of learning curve that is required in terms of like learning how to design the cutting guides and design the plates and just like the way you're going to position bone segments. It's It's a little bit different. And the engineer, you know, you get on this session with an engineer, depending on the vendor that you're using, usually it's Stryker or KLS Martin or Synthes are the, the main three that we use. And um, so you get on a call with an engineer and they, they're kind of controlling the like computer assisted design software and manipulating things. And you're trying to direct them what you want exactly. And they do this with many other surgeons. So sometimes they're, they don't really suggest stuff, which I wish they would early on because Sometimes you're just not sure how most people would do X, Y, or Z defect. So there's a little bit of a learning curve that was required as far as like designing the shape of the cutting guides, because they have a lot of different options. And sometimes it's hard to physically fit the cutting guide into the space that you're working in. So you kind of have to know, you know, what works and what doesn't. But after I got the hang of it, I realized it did just help, you know, it does save some time in the OR. Granted, you're using that time elsewhere, you know, it takes maybe a simple case is about 10 minutes to plan, but sometimes they can take 30 minutes or even 40 minutes if it's something complex. So you still are spending that time, but at least you're saving the patient a little bit of anesthetic time. The main reason why I like it is just because it forces you to kind of think about what you're going to do ahead of time and you have a definitive plan and you pin down the person that's doing the resection and you kind of communicate more thoroughly than you otherwise would and think of like contingency plans and plan A and plan B, which of course you should normally, but it just like requires it to be more precise because you have to know exactly what tooth like on the mandible you're going to make your osteotomy. And then you can see it in three dimensions. You can see how the different segments are going to fit together and what degree of asymmetry because you're taking straight bone segments. It's never going to be perfectly 
the same shape as a native mandible, which is curved. So you can kind of play with things and see what works better, especially with very long fib fibula segments. Like if you're reconstructing more than half a mandible and you want to see how much fibula is available and you might be pushing the boundary of how much fibula you can resect and then that might affect the resecting surgeon's margin. Sometimes they just want to take some extra, you know, an extra centimeter or two because it doesn't really affect the patient at all. But if you can't reconstruct that as well, then that might influence that decision. So that's something you wouldn't really know ahead of time unless you were you know, like really, really good at just looking at the images and and being able to tell those small distances in your mind. Just the, the fact that it forces you to plan the case out in your mind uh, ahead of time is really why I like it. Because then you're just kind of executing on the day of surgery. You're not really thinking about how you're going to solve the problem. You're just kind of doing the technical things unless the plan changes. And occasionally it does. And this is on the computer or are you wearing like an oculus like no it's just on the computer <laughs> okay um, I'm like, yeah. like, are we printing i have a holodeck <laughs> and i like go inside it <laughs> are you then, in the metaverse yeah. at this point on the i like, just where text are we? Uh, my friend zuck and he just like pulls it up on the facebook and then we yeah we go to town <laughs> okay cool cool Do, and that's and that's mostly you're talking mandibles fibula, fibula reconstruction of mandibles is mostly when you're using the virtual planning Bone, bony Anything reconstructive bone? cases, so mandible or mid-face. Um, and I find it pretty helpful for the mid-face because of the fact that it's more complex, to kind of, especially like a total maxillectomy with orbital preservation is one of the more complex bony reconstructions that we do just because we're trying to maintain the position of the eye. And if you, you know, drop the eye by a couple millimeters, they might start getting diplopia. It's a more cosmetically sensitive. It's just like a more complex shape. And then you also have dentition that you have to worry about as far as dental rehabilitation and then the nasal airway too. So th those are more challenging. A few millimeters makes more of a difference than it does on a mandible. So the, the other thing that I didn't mention before is so when we do the virtual surgical planning, we can create a model of the defect. So then we can plate our construct like in the model and we can put all our little plates on, especially for the mid-face. Physically or virtually? Physically, like in surgery, we have a model of like a plastic model of the bony facial skeleton with the resection done already. So it's missing the, the resection. So you have some basically a, a plastic model of your defect. And then we can take like if it's a three, four segment mid-face bony reconstruction, we can then plate all the bone fragments together and cut them and shape them and plate them to the plastic model using the plastic model like as the, the fake inset. And so then you have all your your bony fragments plated together and you can just take that whole thing as like an already prefabricated construct and then you can bring that up to the face and just pop it in. And so that allows us to do more of a um, minimally invasive approach for total maxillectomy where we can just do like a mid-facial degloving and a transoral incisions and transnasal incisions and avoid making incisions on the face. Whereas... If you don't do that, it's just very hard to kind of get the screwdrivers in the angles that you need, and you can't just kind of control the, the segments and get them into position. So this makes it a little easier to like work through a smaller cavity when we're doing the plating. Yeah, that makes sense. So intra-op, tell me the sequence of, and it, it may vary, maybe uh, case to case or what your day is like, but in terms of like the harvest and then right because then they you know then and then when you come back to put the flap in tell me about that like how do you 
How do you harvest or prepare the donor site? And um, and are you able to do it at the same time that ablation is happening? Do you, you know, wait until they're done? Or Depends on the case. If it's like five flap cases, generally you can do the vast majority of the harvest without committing to the size of the actual skin paddle. That's more difficult to do with forearm and fibula cases. So usually we want to make the reconstruction no larger than it has to be because they end up having a skin graft in those donor site locations when it comes to forearm and fibula. So usually for those two locations, I'll wait until the resection is done, but then they still usually have a neck or two to do, and we can get the harvest done while we're waiting for frozens and waiting for them to complete the neck dissections. But for thigh reconstructions, I'll, I'll just start pretty much immediately unless I have something else going on um, in a different room. For scapula, it's challenging to simultaneously work, like any of the subscapular system, like lat or serratus or scapula, because the arm has to be kind of up and extended. You can do it, but it, everybody's kind of uncomfortable, and so I usually just wait until they're completely done to start doing uh, any of those subscapular system flaps. And um, for the thigh, I recall like dopplering out where you think the artery is going to be do you still do that at the thigh? And what other, for the different donor sites, are you still, you know, doppling out or other ways that you prepare when you're thinking for the harvest? Yeah, we doppler the thigh just to get a sense of the perforators. It doesn't really matter that much unless you're trying to make like a an extra thin thigh and, and like raise it in a subcutaneous plane instead of like subfascial or immediately superfascial plane because sometimes like where the perforator goes through the fasciolata doesn't exactly correspond to where it comes through the skin or like a very small flap, I guess. But we do Doppler for thighs to get a sense of where those perforators are going to be. You know, it's not the main source vessel, pedicle vessel that we're looking for. It's the the little branches that come up through the muscle and through the intermuscular septi and, and terminate in the skin. That's what we're looking for. And we do that for fibula also. Uh, for forearm, there's no Dopplering um, for scapula tip and, and lat, we don't generally Doppler. And special considerations when you're raising the flap, like are there, you know, certain things that are particular that need to be happening, you know, when in regards to, I don't know, anesthesia or the setup or anything like that? Not specific to when, when we're physically raising the flap. I mean, we use tourniquet for fibula flaps and for forearm flaps. You don't have to, but it makes it uh, easier. So there's a little bit of like a time constraint um, when you're using the tourniquet, but uh, otherwise there's nothing, no really different uh, management from an anesthesia perspective just because we're raising the flap, aside from the fact that we're going to be stimulating the patient more because they, you know, they're working on the head and the, they've already made incisions. So when we go in, down and start to make incisions on the leg or the arm, then it, it stimulates the patient more. So anesthesia kind of has to be ready for that additional anesthetic requirement. Um, but other than that, there's not really anything. There's not like a certain map. Yeah, blood pressure or flu fluid, like recessive, like do you limit them on fluid or? For the entire case, we try to stay below five liters of crystalloid for the entire case. So not specific to the harvest, but just like, you know, part of our timeout when we're discussing antibiotics and, and usually we're doing just ANSEF for cutaneous cases and we're doing unison for um, mucosal cases. And then if it's some sort of like chronic wound situation, we might be doing something different based on like cultures. We tell them to, you know, as far as pressors, some people are pretty adamant that they don't want to use pressors on any free flap cases. But uh, from my perspective, I think there's 
sufficient evidence. You know, there's there's not that much evidence for most things in microvascular reconstruction, but for pressors, it seems like there there are a decent number of studies at this point, including meta-analyses that show that using pressors at like normal reasonable doses do not adversely affect the flap outcomes. So I just kind of tell anesthesia, like, look, if you if need to use pressors, if the patient is uvolemic and they're still not maintaining an adequate blood pressure, then I'd rather that they give them some pressors as opposed to start flooding them with fluids. For blood transfusions, we usually use around eight as a cutoff. There is a little bit of a upper limit to what you want the hemoglobin to be, just theoretically speaking, in terms of blood viscosity. Um, and if you're going to be transfusing, it's not like we would intentionally bloodlet a patient to get them below nine, but like you generally, unless there's some sort of medical reason to transfuse them, we certainly wouldn't do it for anything that's above nine just because of this viscosity issue and, and therefore flow. And of course, there's no reason to give people transfusions unless there's a real indication for it because there's a small risk of, you know, reaction to transfusion. There's a risk of immunosuppression with transfusion. So the we we usually use like 7.5 as a cutoff for transfusion uh, unless there's some other medical issue that requires that they have a higher hemoglobin like cardiac wise or otherwise. So five liters for crystalloid, we we let them use albumin if they need a little bit more of a volume resuscitation, then, then the colloid is um, fine. What's the rationale for limiting like the volume? Like that it's just like you're going to get too much edema in the flap or? Yeah, it's associated with uh, adverse outcomes in terms of the wound healing and also the flap survival rate. Because that volume moves out of the vascular circulation. Yeah, I mean, the flap is completely cut off from all lymphatic drainage. So the flaps always have edema disproportionate to the rest of the surgical site because they have no lymphatic drainage. So I think, you know, theoretically, it's just that the flap is going to kind of swell to a greater degree than the rest of the body and therefore it could have microcirculatory injury because of the pressure that's being exerted on it or just macroscopic pressure against the pedicle and therefore it could restrict flow through the pedicle and then thrombose in that way. But there is an association between excessive fluid resuscitation and um, adverse outcomes. So you've harvested the flap and, you know, they've done the ablation. When you're actually like when you say harvest, and this might be a dumb question, um, let's say, for example, fibula, you've exposed your vessels in terms of which artery and vein you're going to take from the donor site, you expose the bone. Are you making the, when do you make the actual cuts for like bone cuts? The, bo- the bone cuts as well as the vascular cuts at the donor site? Do you wait until the ablation's done and then you look at it and then you go back and then finish those cuts to then take everything or... Do you have everything out and on the back table, and then you go in uh, once ablation's done? So again, for fibula, usually I will wait until the primary specimen is resected. And then if the, the ablating surgeon feels good about the margins, then we'll proceed. Though it's, it's kind of nice to, to have the actual frozen margins back before you go ahead and, and make the skin paddle design. Um, They can't get frozen on the bone, obviously, so the bone kind of is wherever they've decided to make those cuts, which hopefully are corresponding to where we planned with the VSP. So when we're harvesting the fibula, first we kind of come along the the anterior side of the bone and come through the anterior uh, musculature, just isolating the bone, and then we make cuts at the inferior most aspect. You know, we leave about seven, eight centimeters of bone by the ankle and 
six, seven of centimeters of bone by the knee just to maintain stability in those locations, but that we'll just remove the rest of the fibula. So we'll cut, you know, inferiorly and superiorly then, and that helps us retract the bone and then access the peroneal vessels, which are the pedicle for the fibula. So we make those bone cuts just as we're harvesting. And then as we isolate the flap and kind of trace the pedicle proximally, it's just hanging on by its artery and two veins at that point. And then depending on the type of reconstruction, we might start making the the actual osteotomies for the the reconstructive segments at that point while it's still perfusing, or we might just wait until they're completely done the ablation and then do it on the back table. So in some instances, like when we do dental implants at the time of surgery, then that takes that just takes too long to do that on ischemia time. So we put the cutting guide on the fibula while it's still attached by its pedicle and it's still perfusing. We make the fibula osteotomies. We plate it on the model, like I was talking about earlier. All before cutting the yeah. OA? Okay. Yeah. And then the oral surgeons will will put in the dental implants or at least the... Posts. Yeah, the posts and some form of abutment and that can take like an hour or so. So there's no reason to do that on ischemia time. You know, we want to keep the total ischemia time to less than three hours uh, is, is my general guideline. And usually it's significantly less than that um, for fibula, maybe like two hours. Um, typically I'll inset the soft tissue or the majority of the soft tissue before reperfusing it just so it's not bleeding and you can see a little bit better in the posterior oral cavity. So I, I have no qualms about like two hours of ischemia time. Three is, I really try and keep it below three. Um, and we would struggle with that for these complex um, cases with dental implants if we were going ischemic and then doing all those cuts on the back table. The advantage of doing it on the back table is that you have a little bit more freedom of movement and you're not potentially pulling on the pedicle and it's just easier to kind of manipulate things. But other than that, it's it's definitely doable to do all the osteotomies and plating um, while it's still attached to the leg and perfusing. And again, if I'm waiting for the ablative team to finish, then I might do that, even though it takes a little bit longer for me to do that and it's a little bit more um, difficult to do it while it's attached to the leg, at least then I save the, you know, 20 minutes later on in the case for the anesthetic time um, if I get that done before we go ischemic. Yeah. So you're doing your entire inset mo- most of the time prior to your anastomosis. So you kind of get that all set how you like it and then you do your anastomosis most of the time. Yeah. Anything that looks like it would be challenging to access. Um, so like Specifically in terms of oral cavity stuff, we'll we'll do, yeah, anything that's posterior, the anterior area, we might leave just so we can see a little bit of the flap edge and we can assess it for bleeding and we can um, access anything that's like bleeding underneath the flap to get hemostasis afterwards. Like a little bit of access is good, but yeah, I'll try and get as much of it done as possible in any kind of challenging, hard to reach areas. And then if it's something that's just on the scalp or like a cutaneous defect, then no, then we'll just do the the anastomosis and reperfuse the flap before we really do any incident. We'll just put a few tacking sutures. But the other issues is you don't want to, you know, you want to know where the flap is going to inset before you do your um, anastomosis because you don't want to have to like change something or or commit to something that you're not going to be happy with in terms of the position of the flap after you've already done the anastomosis. That would be counterproductive. So. Um, you want to kind of know exactly where it's going to sit and then you don't want it to fall off the face while you're under the microscope. That would be suboptimal as well. So 
um, let's talk about when you're under the microscope. Do you do the artery first and then the veins? Does it matter which one you do? It doesn't really matter which one you do. Usually I end up doing the veins first just because there's not really, it's just my custom, I guess. Uh, you know, to some extent, uh, you have to have the clamp on the artery a little bit longer if you do the artery first. And so it's nice in my mind to have it, the, the clamp on for as little time as possible, just so it, you know, maybe causes slightly less injury to the vessel. But it's, it really just depends on like how the vessels are lying and which is more superficial and which is more deep and, and what seems like it'll just be easier to access and do first. That's really the main determining factor. And do you, for the veins, do you use a coupler or do you uh, hand and um, with suture or does it? Couple. Yeah, a I coupler. use the coupler okay. 99% of the time. The only instance where we might hand sew is sometimes for like an end to side to the internal jugular vein, although usually you can use the coupler for that too, unless it's like a previous radiation and there's zero elasticity or a very small internal jugular vein. But otherwise you can you can use the coupler end to side or some other antiside situations to smaller veins or a really large vessel mismatch, something like that. But that's, these situations are pretty rare. So it's it's been years since I've sewn a vein, I think. And do you have a strong preference for having like, you know, more than one vein? Like, do you usually have like, you know, multiple? Yeah, I do all the veins that are there, you know, so I... I uh, acknowledge the fact that you probably only need one vein and it maybe does not add anything. That being said, I did have a situation years ago where there was a, a flap that ended up getting congested like late post-operative course, like post-op day nine or 10 or something like that. And we took her to the OR and, and like the veins were thrombosed and we ended up taking down one of them and we flushed TPA through it and we managed to get it going and then we I can't remember but I remember being happy about the fact that I had like two veins and the one I ended up just sacrificing at that point but um, that was one situation that ever happened that actually like felt beneficial to have two veins so I'm not saying that it's really something that you need to do plenty of people just routinely do one vein but my feeling is that it takes like five minutes to put a coupler on so I just couple all the veins like there are times when there have been three veins in a fibula and I've just coupled all three because it's just easy to do and I just sleep a little better at night um, but then there's also like a contrary school of thought that's like well if you only do one then the flow is higher through the veins so therefore you're less likely to get thrombosis because you have a higher rate of flow through the vein but um, you know I don't know it's, it it probably doesn't matter but I just I just do too and if you have a valve uh, do you just like trim like proximal to that or do you ever run into valves yeah we run into valves a lot i mean i know they say that there are no valves in the neck but there are valves in the neck um but there are definitely valves in the extremity circulation so i mean the valves should all be oriented in the way that you know is allowing the blood to drain from proximal to distal or reverse for veins actually but um if it's like right in the area of the anastomosis, then either we'll cut it back a little bit, but that might then change the caliber of the vein. So it really depends on whether or not you can tolerate cutting it back in terms of length or caliber. Otherwise, you could just pin it to the coupler so that it's pinned open. But but there are times when I just leave it because the directionality is appropriate anyway. So they don't bother me too much. I was going to ask um, about the artery. Do you have a preference for 
uh, what type of suture you use for the artery. Is there a certain number or of sutures that you put in, or do you space them out in a certain way? Do you have a, how do you think about that? The suture we use is 90 nylon, and it's on a needle that's called a BV130-4, which is just the needle that I like to use, but there's plenty of other needles. Um, there's That's like a taper needle that's sort of like semicircular, but then it has a little bit of a straight back to it, and it's just like a little thicker and shorter, which is just a little easier to control, I think. But that's just personal preference. And then um, sometimes if you have like a significant atherosclerosis, then you need what's called a taper cut needle, which is like a V130 or 100. I forget the exact number, but it's got a little bit of a cutting edge to it. So it can break through like a a plaque a little bit more easily. That's pretty rare that we need to use that like maybe a, a once a year or twice a year or something like that. And then for spacing them out, there's not nothing hard and fast. It's really just how to, how it looks. I've never really measured like how much my just internal... You know, my caliper. Like, yeah, I mean, it's not a bad question though. I mean, sometimes it leaks when, I mean, not when I do it, obviously only if the fellow's doing it, but sometimes it leaks afterwards. We just put in a, a rescue stitch if we need to, if it's like really shooting out. Otherwise it just stops on its own generally. And then the way I do it is, uh, you know, I use the little double approximator, Heifetz clamp or Ackland clamp, however you describe the the like mini vascular, microvascular bulldog apparatus that we use to kind of hold the two vessels together. Not everybody likes using the double um, approximator, but we did that in residency. We did that in fellowship. Some of them have this little cage on them that you can wrap sutures around, which people like. I I don't like that just because it gets in the way when you're trying to suture and tie, and I just don't find the extra tension and retraction helpful. And then I'll put stitches on either side, like 180 degrees circumferentially around so two stitches just one on you know either side of the vessel and then we'll sew the front side we'll flip it over and sew the back side do you use papaverin or flushes routinely or is that only to like in case you're worried about only if you see a plaque so we always use heparinized saline um, irrigation i think our concentration is 20 units per cc i may not be remembering that accurately but so we use just heparin in saline and that's just to wash out the vessels as you're doing the anastomosis, I don't like flush it all the way through and look for a return. Some people like to do that, but it's kind of 50-50, I think. So we, that's also to prevent desiccation. So we put like a few wet laps around the field. We make a little triangle just because the light from the microscope can desiccate the tissue and it's sitting there. And when you get, you know, your veins start getting dried out, they become all leathery and it's kind of um, disconcerting. So we want to keep everything moist as we're doing it and to flush out any clot, you know, tiny little bits of clot or little bits of blood. And then as far as papaverin, we'll use that if it's smaller vessels, if they look like they're spasming a little bit. Um, we don't use it 100% of the time. Like if they're very robust vessels that, that are large caliber, then sometimes I don't papaverin them. Can you remind me what papaverin is? It's like a smooth muscle relaxant. I think it's like a phosphodiesterase inhibitor or something like that. I My biochemistry is lacking <laughs> at this point in my life. But um, Do you ever use that for uh, veins? Do you have to flush and uh, with heparin, saline, or papaverin in your, in your veins before you We flush you upload, both or? sides with the saline. You know, we wash the blood out of the portion so of the vessel. There. Yeah, that's immediately ah, okay. adjacent. So we wash that out. But again, we don't, some people like to, to flush it until, like flush the artery until you see 
saline come out the vein. That's not something that I do. I just kind of wash the the segment that's near the anastomosis until it runs clear, like flush the artery until the fluid that's backflowing out of the artery is clear, which takes about three seconds usually. And then the same thing for the vein. For the hypercoagulable patient, um, you had mentioned using intra-op heparin. When is that turned on? Is that turned on uh, at the start of the case or is it just when you're ready to start taking vessels or because there's probably a time at which, right? It gets Yeah, I would turn that on. Um, so we would probably give them like a, do- we don't necessarily routinely give them pre-op DVT prophylaxis, but in those cases I would give them pre-op DVT, just the prophylactic 500 sub-Q heparin dose. And then if it's a flap that we're going to use a tourniquet on, then I would probably start the the systemic heparin infusion before, you know, about half an hour before we want to go on tourniquet. Otherwise, about half an hour before we go ischemic. So it has some time to kind of kick in because the blood's going to be sitting in that flap. You know, once you go ischemic, even if you flush it through, my concern is that there would just be some amount of, of blood that could clot within the flap from stasis at that point. So you want the heparinization to be kind of on board before you go on ischemia time. And so usually we'll do a bolus. So it depends what we're, you know, the patient's weight and what our goal is, but we'll do a bolus and then start an IV infusion and then just keep that infusion running till probably about a week until we can start to transition to something that's, you know, like a once a day dosing, but is more difficult to reverse. The rationale being if there's a hematoma, we want something that we can reverse pretty easily like heparin by just stopping it. And then with your arterial anastomosis, like, are you doing implantable Dopplers? Oh, no. I was using them for a while. You know, in residency, we did not use them. In fellowship, we did use them. And then uh, they're kind of nice because they give you, you know, you kind of know that you're listening to the right vessel. Sometimes when you put a Doppler, a stitch on the neck um, on a flap, especially a buried flap, then that you can't monitor and you can't see, then you don't necessarily know if if you or the nurse or the resident are Dopplering the real pedicle versus just some other artery in the neck. But... You know, it's not really been shown to actually give people a better outcome in terms of flap salvage rates. Like there's there's some data that it does a little bit. And again, you can use the the um, implantable Doppler for the artery or the vein. And then again, there's kind of conflicting data depending on the study that you look at, whether it's more common to have an arterial or a venous thrombosis as the cause of a perfusion issue post-op. So some people prefer to use the, the venous there's a coupler that has a implantable Doppler attached to it. Some people prefer that. Some people prefer the arteries. Some people like to use both. Uh, on the Doppler box, there's two channels, so you can plug two, two Dopplers into it. But I've kind of stopped using it over the last couple of years just because I just felt like it wasn't really adding anything. Um, you know, you feel, it makes you feel kind of nice that you hear it, but um, we just had situations where it was either malfunctioning or... Um, it was not interpreted properly. And, you know, ultimately, if you have a tool, then it's only as useful as the people who are kind of interpreting it. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've had we had one case where where um, it was like a post-op day seven after a laryngectomy and like a thigh flap just for a patch on the pharynx. And then in the morning, the nurses told us that they had turned off the Doppler overnight because it was just giving static signal. And, oh, no. um, but that was actually like the loss of, that was the thrombosis that occurred because of a occult fistula that we had not yet clinically ascertained. So then the flap ended up dying. We took it back, but it was too late at that point. So if that's happening with an implantable Doppler, then I don't know, what's the point? And that was, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty rare to, 
So, and I remember being like nervous about when you, you know, pull it and cut it off. Uh, yeah, that always it made out. me like super nervous. Yeah. As a president. I have heard of instances where there's been an injury by pulling out the Doppler. Usually I would pull them out myself, just not that, uh, I mean, there's nothing really to it. You just pull on it, but um, that way I can't blame somebody else if something bad happens after it gets pulled out. And then it was one more thing to worry about, and then the wire, and then physical therapy is working with the patient, and the wire is getting pulled on, and then we're worried that maybe there's, you know, going to be a hematoma in 15 minutes. So it just was like causing a little bit more stress in many situations than it was alleviating. So yeah, yeah I kind of gravitated away from it, unless, again, maybe a buried flap or something where it's hard to monitor otherwise. Yeah. Do you do like the little skin paddle? indicator part for like your buried flaps you know like i've seen sometimes like there's like a little just like square of flap tissue that's like made external so that you can monitor the flap i may not be describing that well but if it's feasible to do it without creating a lot of extra work then yes so like laryngectomy cases um usually you can just put a little small fusiform shaped paddle like just superior to the stoma and and that's a nice thing to just be able to see it but sometimes i mean the other issue with doing a little monitoring paddle is there are times when when your monitoring paddle will locally have perfusion issues but it doesn't necessarily mean that the flap is globally ischemic so you can have false reads i mean i think if the, the reverse could be true too, although I think usually if the monitoring paddle looks good, the odds of the main flap look being uh, ischemic or whatnot, having a problem is extremely low. But um, but yeah, I, I usually do try to create a little monitoring paddle if it's, if it's feasible. Um, and then if it looks sad, like as we're closing, but the main flap looks good, I might get rid of it because I don't want to like have a false positive like scare in terms of flat perfusion. So tell us about um, post-op. Do you, uh, one, have a protocol or anything like that? Um, and two, are we doing Q1 flap checks the first uh, 24 hours still, then Q2, like is that still happening? And then, uh, you know, what are some signs? Do you have like an algorithm if somebody is concerned for whether it's venous congestion versus a thromb, you know, an arterial problem? Yeah, we've got a protocol. Um, we just revised it, actually. It's now 24 pages, uh, 25 <laughs> pages long. We don't have to go through all 24, <laughs> five pages. <laughs> Good, because it takes an hour and a half. I did that yesterday. Uh, but, I mean, most of it is actually, you know, we're trying to create a document that's both kind of tells people what happens on each day, post-operative day, and, you know, things to look out for when preparing for a case and pre-op preparations and things like that but then also like filling in the rationale behind different things and you know all kinds of stuff like who might be appropriate to decannulate and how you decide if somebody is maybe ready to start PO intake or capping their trach or whatever so there's just a lot of like kind of background information in there too it's not all just like day to day do this at this point in time but as far as flap checks we'll do we do Q1 hours for almost 72 hours. So we have them go to the ICU. We don't have a intermediate or a step-down unit, unfortunately. So Q1 hour checks can't be done on the floor. They can do Q4 hour, I, th- I believe, is the most frequent checks that they can do. So And they being like nursing, right? Like it's a nursing doing correct, the checks? Correct. It's a nursing order. Yeah, nurses can't, you know, because of the number of patients they have, they're restricted by the frequency of different 
orders that can be carried out on patients, you know, on the floor relative to the ICU. So ICU can do Q1 hour nursing flap checks. And so that's what we do. What does that entail, Eli? Like, or is that just them Dopplering the stitch or, you know, what are you asking? They document do? the color, the warmth. Everything. So they, you know, as long as it's visible, then, then flap check entails like looking at the flap. Does the color look normal? It should just look like normal, healthy skin, right? So unfortunately, a lot of times the flap is more pale than the surrounding tissue, especially when it's coming from the leg and it's going to the face um, or the thigh, you know, is pretty pale relative to the face. So it's always going to look pale relative to the surrounding tissue, but um, it's really more a change th than anything else. So whether it looks pale, extra pale, whether it starts looking purple, which might be a sign of congestion. Uh, edema, like I mentioned, is pretty normal and, and flaps, especially perforator-based flaps, they tend to get pretty edematous slowly over the course of the first three days. And that's kind of the peak, I, I think, is around day three. And then it starts slowly tapering off again. But like a sudden change in, in flap edema or swelling that might signify hematoma under the flap or hematoma in the neck or wherever else and uh, the temperature is not the easiest thing to assess. A lot of time the flap does feel more cool relative to the surrounding skin, but you know, you palpate it, you feel the temperature, you feel the general kind of turgor or just how tight uh, it feels. It again, should feel pretty normal, but it does get swollen. And then the Doppler check. And um, usually we have some degree of like donor site extremity checks too. So just doing the same thing with the hand, if it's a forearm, just look at the hand and uh, especially thumb and forefinger, which are the distal most in the circulation. If you're getting your circulation from your ulnar artery now and you have no radial artery, making sure that the cap refill and sensation and motor are all intact on the donor site. And there's no evidence of compartment syndrome developing. And then... If there's any concern, then they call our resident team and then the residents would assess. And if they agree that there's some something questionable on the flap check, then the next step is to to scratch it or, or stick it with a needle, uh, depending on your preference. Usually I take a scalpel and just make like a tiny little like paper cut depth kind of thing just through the epidermis and, and barely into the dermis. So not anything that um, needs to be sutured up, but just like a little, literally like it looks like a paper cut. And I just find that easier to ascertain whether or not there's blood return than if you stick it with a little needle. And so then you, you look at the blood and if it's not bleeding, then obviously that's concerning for ischemia. If it's bleeding real dark red blood that comes out extremely quickly, then that's concerning for venous congestion because you have backflow of blood into the flap. And then there's everything in between, which is usually where it is. And then you're trying to figure out what you should do yeah. at that point. Normal would be like bright, like a little bit of bright red blood. Like if everything is yeah, that Yeah, but sometimes or... it's pretty brisk. I mean, you know, it's it can be hard sometimes. I mean, if you like going back to the paper cut analogy, if you like cut your finger like that, it oftentimes it'll bleed pretty briskly, you know, for a little bit until you hold pressure and it stops. So sometimes it, the flap, a normal flap will bleed quite briskly, but as long as it's bright red blood, then I'm not too concerned about that. But then it might be something to just monitor and go back, you know, for the resident to check themselves every hour or a little bit more frequently just to make sure it's not something that's progressing. Because a lot of times, you know, the goal is to catch things as early as possible, but that also means that you might, you know, in these situations where you're not sure, then you're trying to rule out whether or not it's a progressive perfusion problem. And if you're catching early venous outflow obstruction, meaning like the flap is now 
bleeding more than it ought to be, um, then over time that's going to worsen and the flap's going to start getting purple and it's going to start getting blue. And, and arterial thrombosis that follows that is extremely difficult to salvage at that point because that means the entire flap has like become static and, and clotted off. So if they come back and they, they can just kind of scratch with a needle the cut that we already made there and, and elicit bleeding from the cut that we already put there, that way you don't have to be like stabbing the flap over and over again with needles because that ends up causing bruising if the flap's not dead. And then that becomes more difficult to interpret because now you have a bruised flap that may have a perfusion problem. So yeah, so you're, you're just looking for the speed of bleeding. But again, as long as it looks bright red, then, you know, even if it's pretty slow, as long as it's present, um, and when it's, when it's starting to get ischemic, you see this weird, like serous component to the blood, like you might see a tiny little drop of blood. And then there's like this serous fluid that also starts coming out. Um, and that's usually a bad sign. Is imaging ever helpful? Like if you're not sure, like does... CT or ultrasound or I don't know, is there any like, you know, objective studies that help you decide? Well, the problem is if there's really a problem, you kind of need to act on it more quickly. So you can't really wait around for like trying to get a CT. I mean, theoretically, I would think like a CT angio, you could look at it uh, at the pedicle. You could do it like a duplex ultrasound um, and look at the pedicle. And I think there are times when we've tried that when we were like, I really don't think this is a true problem, but I just want to like be able to sleep better tonight. But you know, the classic teaching is like, if you're in doubt, just go back to the OR and just open it up and check because worst case scenario, you like, okay, you like had an unnecessary take back and you spent like a couple hours, you know, mobilizing the OR and then half an hour to actually like look in the neck and assess the pedicle. The patients had a little extra anesthesia, but a lot of times they have a trach anyway. So it's like pretty, pretty easy to induce anesthesia in them. Uh, if, if they don't, and it's like a difficult airway, then that's a, di- you know, that factors into your decision-making too, because it's all just like risk-benefit analysis. But, but really, if you have a doubt about the circulation of the flap, then going back to the OR is the gold standard thing to do at that point. In terms of like, let's say you kind of caught it early, you know, we're going to do more frequent checks and we're going to try the scratch thing. What do you use temporizing measures? Are we still doing things like nitrous or leeches? And how do you know whether to do those things uh, versus we need to go back? It can be difficult to figure that out sometimes. And again, like going back is usually the first line. Sometimes you go back and it looks fine and the mac- the macro circulation looks fine, the artery looks fine, the vein looks fine, but the flap looks weird. So then that's like some kind of local or microvascular issue. And so for that, there's not really an operative intervention that you can do, you know, that usually in this situation, it's some kind of partial flap issue. So you might have a very large flap and a a portion of it is unhappy for one reason or another. So then you might consider using nitro paste in that situation. Um, I mean, theoretically, you could use like hyperbaric oxygen, which um, may help for small amounts of ischemic tissue, although that's pretty difficult to do on inpatients who are, you know, ICU, post-op day one, head and neck resection, free flap. That's probably not practical. And then we do sometimes use leeches for cases where there's like a local area that looks congested or flap looks congested. We've taken it back. We've, you know, done everything we can and it seems like it's holding on, but we're still, you know, it's still congested for some reason. Sometimes these little perforator-based flaps 
you, know, you might have like a tiny somehow a, an injury to the the tiny little vein as it enters the the skin so you can have transient kind of perfusion issues in in perforator flaps that might be temporized with leaching but if it's a real like venous clot then like leaching it is not really the way to go you need to try and take it to the OR and fix the issue um, so these are really just in situations where it's like a local flap like part of a flap perfusion problem or you've already tried you know everything that you possibly can in terms of salvage operatively and it's not worked and when you're going to the OR to troubleshoot what does that what does that look like are you like do you take um are you taking down your anastomoses are you just kind of like can you like get an idea of how it's doing just by looking at it or dopplering it or you know what is what does it look like when you're kind of doing that or take back you can get a sense of how it looks like i mean if you open the neck and it looks normal after you've been doing it for a little while, you you can get a sense for what a normal artery looks like. If there's a clot, usually there's a bit of a discoloration, like a purpleness. Arteries are usually kind of like white, light pink kind of shade. And so it, it gets a discoloration usually when there's a clot in there. But depending on the wall thickness of the artery, you may or may not see that. Certainly you would see you know, when you have a pedicle and it's flowing properly, especially in cases where it's kind of geometrically curving or looping on itself, you don't want to have it like kinked, but sometimes we like create a gentle curvature in the pedicle so that it's, you know, going to where it needs to go, but not kinking. But then it, you see the whole thing expanding um, as it pulsates. It's not just kind of rocking back and forth, which is more indicative of there being some kind of obstruction and you're just getting like a transmitted pulsation appearing kind of thing from the fact that it's, you know, attached to a vessel that at some point does have some flow in it until that flow hits the obstruction. So you can just look and see whether or not it's expanding. You can Doppler it. If you if the neck is open, then you're able to like lift the pedicle up and Doppler it with air underneath it such that you're not potentially picking up the signal of a deeper artery, which you can if you're just like Dopplering it while it's flat against the neck. And for the vein, likewise, you can probably more easily tell when there's a clot inside a vein because it's a thinner walled structure. And then you can palpate a vein a little bit more easily. You take your little micro jeweler forcep and you can palpate artery, palpate vein. You can feel when there's a clot in there, especially for the vein. It's pretty obvious most of the time. And um, you can do what's called a strip test where you take two jewelers and you just gently, you kind of hold for the vein you would be holding towards the flap, like upstream of where the the venous drainage is coming from and then you like milk with the other pickup you draw your hand down towards the anastomosis and then you let go of the first one you try and see whether or not there's um, venous blood passing through that area but so then if you're not sure then you have to take it down or cut a side branch sometimes there's little side branches that you clipped when you were doing the harvest and then sometimes you can cut one on the artery and see whether or not there's there's brisk blood pulsatile arterial blood shooting out of the side branch um, or likewise with the vein and look for appropriate venous bleeding. But again, if you can't tell or you're not sure, then the next step is you just have to take it down. And, um, you know, unless it's a very late failure from venous thrombosis, in, in which case like the entire thing is clotted off, usually it's one or the other. And in my experience, it's most commonly been the artery unless it's like a late complication because of fistula or infection that sort of affects everything then you don't necessarily have to take down the vein. You might just take down the artery and the clot is going to be right at the anastomosis unless there was some kind of injury to the vessel downstream of the anastomosis. It's pretty much right there. So you just cut right next to your suture line or through your suture line. You can just, you know, see the clot 
pull it out and then try and figure out why the clot happens. Cause that's really the next step is like, are we going to be able to salvage this? How long has it been? How long do we think it's been since we really detected the ischemia and what we need to change? Like, why did this happen? Like, is it a patient intrinsic factor? Like, do they have some sort of hypercoagulable state that we missed or was it a technical error, which is oftentimes, especially early in your career is usually what it is. You just redo it and then it's fine. But those usually occur like 20 minutes, half an hour after you finish the original anastomosis. So, you know, just going back to the implantable Doppler, the one nice thing about the implantable Doppler was you'd put that on right after you finish your anastomosis and then it's there and you're listening to it as you're closing and then it gets slowly quieter over time and then you're like "Uh uh-oh and you wait and you wait and it goes away and then you have to reopen the neck but you're already right there and you're still in the OR and the drapes are still up so you find it immediately Um, I think sometimes there's probably some degree of you know not noticing it until the patient's in the ICU and then maybe you know the last thing you want to do is come back, especially if it was a hard case and it's late at night. So finding these things like intraoperatively if, and Dopplering, you know, like to Doppler, find the, the area that we're going to put a Doppler stitch on, on the neck or wherever it's going to be like before we close the neck so that we are as sure as possible that we're Doppling the appropriate thing. And then Doppler before we take the drapes down, Doppler before we leave the OR room. You know, if there's going to be a problem, you should find it within the first hour so after doing the anastomosis um, if there's like a technical problem or sometimes there's like a plaque that's a little bit downstream of your anastomosis that that just slowed things down enough to create a clot so so then just going back to like what you're doing to try and salvage the situation you're cutting back the vessels till the area looks clean and there's no more clots stuck in there if it's a localized clot, then you're not having to do TPA or like flush the flap through with any kind of thrombolytic agent. Um, you know, if it's just at the anastomosis, then you assume first and foremost that it was either a technical problem with your suturing or perhaps your neck artery didn't have good enough flow. So, you know, you might check that again. Like, does it look like the facial artery or the superior thyroid or whatever you're using? Does that look like it's still tumen, as they say? Or does it look like it's kind of trickling out? And then what's the blood pressure? Is the blood pressure 80 and it's trickling out? Or is the blood pressure 150 and it's still trickling out? Because that's a different situation too. So then maybe you want to pivot to a different neck vessel, um, like whatever it may be, whether lingual or just something else, or just cut the vessel back more until you get good flow. Because step one is find a source of blood that's, that's appropriate for your flap. And then once you have that, then it's looking into the lumen of the the flap artery and trying to ascertain whether there's any indication that there could be atherosclerosis in there. Could there be a plaque more downstream? Does the, you can tell usually just externally looking at the vessel if it if it looks irregular, if there's like a kind of a marble kind of appearance where you see like yellow plaques and stuff like that through the wall, and you can kind of palpate it gently. You don't want to crack these things. So you have to be pretty careful. You don't want to like squeeze an, a very atherosclerotic vessel and cause like a crack in the plaque that then is going to become a thrombogenic stimulus. But uh, yeah, so then just cutting back, cutting back the flap artery, if if that's not working to the extent that you can, just if it if you hook the vessel back up again and it thrombosis again, then you keep cutting the artery back until you can't anymore. And then at some point, if time has been 
too much time has passed, then you've, you've reached what's called the no reflow phenomenon where enough microcirculatory damage has occurred to the flap because of ischemia that um, it's just never going to come back again and all the microcirculation is, is thrombosed and it's, it's over. How much time do you have until then? Theoretically, like for a skin flap, six hours is, you know, what's quoted as like the upper limit of normal. Um, and it decreases with muscle and decreases a lot with like a visceral, like a jejunum type of flap. But um, the problem is you never know when the ischemia occurred unless it's intra-op. So you don't, you don't know if it's like post-op day two and you got called in the morning that the flap didn't look right. Like you have no idea if it's been eight hours or, or what. And then for a flap that is salvageable, like you take it back, you're able to take out, you know, cut back and reanastomose. Do you ever then put these patients on aspirin or heparin afterwards? Or is there any role for, for that post-op? As far as evidence-based role, I don't think so. You know, the only evidence-based anticoagulation scenario is patients with hypercoagulable states. But um, but I do usually put them on, you know, if, if I thought it was an isolated like anatomic or technical thing that we fixed and I feel good about it, then no. But um, if it's something that I just am not sure why this happened, but we managed to get things flowing again, then yeah, I usually will put them on heparin infusion uh, at that point, just because like I'm, I have no idea why this happened in the first place and we want to obviously prevent it from happening again. But then it's, you know, trade-off between hematoma risk versus risk of rethrombosis. And one thing I failed to mention is like doing the thrombolysis and using TPA or, or something else like that. And and that's kind of like, if you think that the, the clot has propagated pretty extensively throughout the flap or kind of the last thing that you do, um, if your, your other stuff isn't working, then, then you can, you kind of have to disconnect the flap from the patient's circulation because you can't inject like TPA into the patient's systemic circulation. You can, but then you're risking like a stroke or bleeding event um, where you don't have to, if you can just either disconnect the vein or clamp the vein and open a side branch and let all the TPA just out um, so that you can suction it up. And sometimes you can use Fogarty catheters, you know, these little vascular catheters with a little balloon on it to try and snake some clot out of there. But that you're also potentially damaging the vessel when you're putting that in and the vessel is narrowing the more distal it goes. So that that oftentimes isn't a great solution, but it's another trick to just like have. Yeah. As we are kind of um, rounding it out, I feel like we've, you know, only scratched the surface, but in the interest of, we made a paper cut in into this topic. Time. Yeah. Any like final thoughts about just kind of, you know, how you think about free flaps and, you know, things that you would want listeners to know as, you know, like the big take home points? Yeah. I mean, things that like I wish I knew earlier that I know now. Um, I mean, number one is like not being afraid to just take the flap back to the OR to take a look because it's always, you take it as like a personal affront to your skill and ability when there's potentially a problem. So you don't want to believe that there's a problem. So, you know, you don't want to rely on like hope um, as a strategy. And uh, I was telling the residents yesterday that hope like as a concept is like completely and utterly worthless when it comes to free flap surgery. <laughs> so like if you think that there's a problem, like you might as well just like look and see and then you'll you'll feel better 
uh, if you open up the the neck and see that everything looks fine, then then great. But uh, you kind of have to force yourself to just do the right thing because it only gets harder. Like the further along the timeline you get when bad things are happening. I mean, the last thing you want to have to do is then like do a whole new flap. And this applies to intraoperative situations too. I mean, I've had cases where you're doing like a let's say a fibula, and then the skin paddle doesn't look good but the bone looks fine and like you didn't find a nice skin perforator and so now it's seven o'clock at night and you're like well the skin pedal doesn't look right should i just close it up and see what happens or should i just now put a thigh flap on top of this and remove the skin and you know do a second flap and at some point you learn that it's just easier to take care of things like immediately as soon as possible and not hope that something that looks wrong is going to just write itself at some point in the future. So that's, that's probably the main thing. And then also just not being afraid to ask for help, especially as this becomes more commonplace and spreads to more like non large academic medical centers. You know, this is stuff that people now do more in the private practice or like quasi, you know, private-demic situation where you don't have a big residency program. You may be the only person who's doing this at your institution, and that's a tough position to be in. But, you know, you you definitely have whoever you trained under that you can call, but you simultaneously also have to realize that you don't have to do every case that comes through your door. And, And that's a difficult position as like a young faculty free flap surgeon to be in is like you get hired especially if there there are a few you know surgeons head and neck surgeons whatnot in your division or departments and they send you a case and you're like okay well they hired me to do this they're sending me this so they obviously think that i should be able to do this case but there are cases that you shouldn't be doing when you're fresh out you know revision revision like third flap that vessel depleted like mid face i don't know There's stuff that it's okay to say, like, this is not something that I, at this point in my life, want to be doing because the risk of something bad happening and then the ability to salvage the situation, the payoff there is just not favorable. And, you know, maybe this patient needs to travel to some other medical center where there's somebody with more experience. You have to, like, get your experience and you can't just, it doesn't take one year of fellowship to, like, figure out how to do this and and it it really takes years till you can start to you know you got to push yourself but but you got to be patient with it too so those are the two wisdoms that i would impart very well good wisdoms (laughs) well it's great to uh, talk to you eli i learned a ton thanks for coming on absolutely anytime let's do this again thank you so much for listening If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's Version Hess and Yvonne Orvijinski. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.